Well, it'd be really helpful to have a Bible or a Bible app ready. So we're looking at Luke chapter 7 as we continue in our Encountering Jesus series. So Luke chapter 7, we're picking up at verse 11, as we've just heard read. And if it's helpful to you, there's an outline on the back of the news and there's some translation points in Dinka and Korean, if, if that's of help and assistance to you. But let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your extraordinary mercy to us. Lord, we are just in great awe and wonder of you. Lord, please, in your kindness this day, would you help us to really understand your word, that we really see you and your compassion clearly, that that would be really reflected in our lives, and that as we look to Jesus, the one who went to the cross and was raised, that we might rejoice that in him we find the one who is willing and able. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, not only has Jesus been making extraordinary claims about himself, he's been evicting evil wherever he goes, but so far in the Gospel of Luke, and we're only up to chapter 7, he has also been racking up an impressive list of healing miracles. It really is quite the list. If we just do a quick scan, a quick survey of the healing witnessed in the Gospel of Luke so far, In chapter 4, Simon's mother-in-law's high fever was healed. In chapter 5, a leper, so someone with an incurable skin disease, they were cleansed. That was quickly followed by the paralyzed man who got up and walked. In chapter 6, a man's shriveled hand was restored. And in chapter 7, a gravely ill servant, so the centurion's servant was made well. And as we look at those and recall those, it's really important to know that these are just the the headlines that is indicative of everything else that Jesus was doing, with Luke reflecting on that and pointing that out in one place in chapter 4, saying, at sunset, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and he healed them. So let that sink in for a moment, that the frequency, diversity, and efficacy, the effectiveness of Jesus' healing had become so pervasive and just common practice that Luke feels no compulsion to detail each and every one of them, but he can just land with a roll-up summary statement, all who had various kinds of sickness, Jesus healed. Now, if you're a medico and you're just starting out in your medical career and somehow, no matter what the illness presented, you could heal it, you'd be the superstar of the emergency department, I reckon your CV would be jam-packed with meticulous, uh, meticulous detail of case after successful case pointing to your extensive, incredible, extraordinary medical prowess that would leave your colleagues marvelling. But not with Jesus. In fact, when he heals, the only persistent feature, other than the occasional laying of hands, is the authority of his own words. No grandstanding, self-aggrandizing hoo-ha, or even prayer. Who is this guy? Who is this guy who comes into people's lives 
and rewrites how the story ends. He has authority to teach. He has authority to evict evil. He has authority to heal. Is there nothing that he cannot do? Well, as we're about to find out, just wait until Jesus crashes a funeral. Uh, He shows us not just what he's capable of, but what all of this points to. So we see in this account, this encounter, in the face of death, Jesus is willing and Jesus is able. So first, in the face of death, verse 11, if you'd love to have a look with me, verse 11 of chapter 7. Soon afterwards, so it's just after Jesus' encounter, albeit from a distance with the centurion and his slave, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. So having just had the physically removed encounter with the centurion and slave, Jesus and his entourage, so note that it's both his disciples and a crowd with him, are making their way. And as this group makes their way toward Nain, a, a town about 10 kilometres southeast of Nazareth, they, they meet a large funeral procession coming outward from the town gate. So Jesus and his mates coming towards, the funeral procession is coming outward. I want you to imagine for a moment this crowd, probably, the crowd with Jesus are probably mixed uh, with a whole lot of full of expectant excitement. They're wondering what he's going to say or do next. But here they are on a collision course with a funeral. Now, don't think the typical funeral in Australia, they're quite solemn and restrained compared to this. They don't usually happen immediately following a death. And much of an Australian funeral is led by funeral directors, and sometimes our funerals actually can strangely feel very disconnected from the grittiness of death. It's a world away from the practice that's being described in Luke chapter 7. Not only were there funerals held as close to the time of death as possible, not only could the period of mourning go for many weeks, but they were all very public affairs. I remember a few years ago now, I was really privileged to lead a funeral for an African man. And I was not only moved by the way in which the entire extended community shared in the grief, but when the body was lowered into the grave, all of the men, all the men who were suited up, all the men of the community went and picked up shovels. And whilst the women sang hymns in the heat of the day, they did so until the grave was filled. The the stark reality of death and the consequential grief was palpable. Here, most of the town are likely involved. Professional mourners and wailers would have been part of this procession, not as some sort of funeral flex to make the weight of the sadness greater, but in order that actually enough noise would be created, and particularly for the loved ones, in order there was enough noise for the loved ones, and particularly the mother, 
to have the freedom to openly express grief and cry their hearts out. Isn't that incredible kindness, actually? They know that a death has taken place. There's no ignoring it, making light of it, or denying it. And when Jesus encounters them, where are they going? They're carrying the wrapped body on a stretcher with spices ready to anoint the body en route to the place of burial, which was likely a cave, and actually, it was probably the cave in which the widow's husband had already been laid. So Luke wants us to understand that whilst, of course, every funeral is sad, this one, for the widow, is a double or even a triple blow. So verse 12, as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. It's heartbreaking. Not only has her husband died, she's a widow, but now her only son, her lifeline, is gone. Being a widow with no family made you extraordinarily vulnerable in the ancient world. It always strikes me as you read throughout the Old Testament, God's expression, God's concern for the widow. Remember, there's, there's no social security, Medicare, life insurance, pensions or superannuation. Without a husband or a son, her outlook was bleak. She had neither a protector nor a provider. She wouldn't have just been devastated, but likely to become destitute. But as the funeral procession walks out, Jesus walks into her sadness. In the face of death, Jesus is willing. So verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bar they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. I love that when immediately when Jesus sees her, his heart goes out to her. When Jesus tells her, don't cry, this isn't some sort of stoic approach of, you know, keep calm and carry on, or she'll be right, things aren't as bad as it seems. We, of course, shouldn't say that to anyone who is grieving. And it's certainly not the heart of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, don't worry, there is nothing to cry about. Jesus knows that death is an enemy. Remember, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus weeps, and is angry at death, despite knowing that he would raise Lazarus only moments later. But Jesus is uniquely qualified to say, don't cry, to console her in this way, because he is willing to do something about it. He has compassion. No, she didn't ask for anything. She didn't stop Jesus along the road. He takes the initiative. With an insight to her grief, pain and future, Jesus doesn't just pass by like we might want to when we see someone in need on the street or when we avoid conversation with someone who is sad because it seems too hard. Jesus doesn't even simply anonymously join the procession as would be culturally accepted and encouraged. But he's so moved with compassion for this woman that is willing to engage. It's such 
incredible news that Jesus has a gut-wrenching, heart-thumping compassion. And of course, this isn't just a one-time thing with Jesus. In fact, if you go through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you look at the various emotions that are described of Jesus expressing, the one emotion that is mentioned more time than actually all the others combined is compassion. And that's evident here, not just in Luke's description of Jesus' heart going out to her, but also in what he does. So even before the healing. So we know that after greeting the woman who was likely walking in front, Jesus then proceeds straight past her up to the bar, the stretcher on which the dead body was being carried, and he touches it. Now, I've seen some pretty odd things at funerals before, but this was unthinkable. It's shocking. So that's why all the bearers, they just stand still. They don't know what to do with this. And it's only made all the more controversial by the claim that people know that's floating around the claim of who Jesus is. That is God. In Jewish thought, for the Messiah or for anyone to touch a body was absolutely unthinkable. It would make you ceremonially unclean. Part of the intent of those laws was to remind you that death is an enemy. In the Greco-Roman world, the notion that a God would fumble around in our mess and get mixed up with our brokenness and frailty, well, that would have been a pathetic joke. And of course, in our secular thinking, it all seems like a pointless exercise, perhaps even a hurtful thing to do, because there's not much that can be done. But the incredible news is that Jesus is not indifferent to our pain nor our suffering, and he won't be constrained by the norms and expectations of others. And because when we look at Jesus, we're looking at God, that what we see in Jesus is true for God, it means that we can be sure that God is the God of compassion. During the peak of COVID lockdowns over the last couple of years, I really found funerals particularly heartbreaking. They were particularly heartbreaking as families often couldn't attend or they could only attend in really small numbers. And even then, they often had to sit really distant from one another. And of course, that was for good reason. It had to be like that. But isolated from one another, amidst the pain of grief, it only seemed to add to the bitterness of the sting of death. I've read and listened to harrowing reports in other countries in which, of course, it was even worse. It's hard to even begin to appreciate the pain of those in Ukraine and elsewhere inflicted with war. But the incredible news we hear and see in Jesus is not only can we go to him, especially if we're alone or feel alone, but when we do, we're greeted with a compassion that knows no bounds. I wonder if you've ever run to him. For the phenomenal news is that not only is Jesus willing to meet us in our need, 
but he is able and he's done something about it. He is both willing and able. So back to verse 14. Then he went up and touched the bar they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. There are all sorts of cultural and social norms broken already as Jesus crashes this funeral. But just when you think it couldn't get any stranger, any odder, he says, young man, I say to you, get up. Now, I've been to quite a few funerals over the years, and you know what? I've never heard someone say this. You can imagine, if the wailing hasn't already stopped, it has stopped now. Everyone would be holding their breath. They would be aghast, and they'd be wondering, what is going to happen? You wouldn't really know where to look, would you? You'd be thinking, do I look at the widow? Do I look at the son? Or do I look... At Jesus. But you wouldn't have to be wondering too long because something, something extraordinary happens. The dead man sat up. Isn't there something delightfully illogical about that phrase? The dead man sat up. As Jesus touches the bar, people would have been worried that somehow death is rubbing off on him. But it's the reverse. Jesus brings life to the dead man cancelling the funeral whilst it's in progress. He was dead. There's no confusion or contention about that. Sometimes we can think that we know better than ancient people. But they were far more around death than we are. But now, he is alive. So Jesus does more than anyone imagined that he would do. This is not how they thought the procession would end. Uh, The widow thought that she was going home alone, but instead, she's going back with her chatty son. That's why the news spreads, of course. Everyone's in awe and wonder, wouldn't you? In fact, so much awe and wonder, that's why we're hearing the news right here today, 2,000 years later in Toowoomba. And Jesus does this just with all other healing, merely with the authority of his words. There are parallels here with uh, accounts of people being raised to life by Elijah and Elisha as they express their dependence on God. Very clear that God was the agent of any healing. But here, whilst there's a parallel, it stands aside as distinct as Jesus simply says the words. I say to you, get up. And he does. It's a pretty regular occurrence in our household, almost actually every single day, that I say to our four-year-old, I say to uh, Theodore, Theodore, put your shoes on. And you know what? It doesn't seem to matter how often I say it or how earnestly (laughs) I say it, it evidently has very little effect. And all I'm asking to do is for our four-year-old to put on their shoes. But Jesus simply speaks the words once, and the dead are raised. The one who spoke creation into existence speaks authoritatively even over death. Uh, There are so many times in life in which I witness, and I'm sure you witness things, in which we feel we are really powerless to assist. Of course, there are those times that we do have the ability, but we're just not willing 
but so often we're powerless to assist. We can be willing to help, but just unable to do so. We don't even know where to begin. But I want you to know that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is able. There's something really extraordinary happening here, but I want us to note both the nature of what is happening and the purpose to which it points. So first, note the nature of this resurrection. So as extraordinary as it is, it really is marvellous, and it's the same with Jairus' daughter and also with Lazarus, this resurrection was just a temporary one. Because if the man didn't die again, it must mean that he'd be still knocking about the place, and I'm pretty sure we would have heard about that. So what's the purpose of it then? Why, why for this woman and not for others? Why not for us now? Why didn't Jesus go around to all the cemeteries paying a visit while he was on earth? Is this just about compassion? Which clearly Jesus had. We note that immediately after the man sits up and starts talking, what does Jesus do? He hands the man to his mother. But it's not just about compassion for it also points to Jesus' identity. I think it's a glimpse pointing to another widow who will lose her eldest son, whose body will be carried off, but who would not just be raised for a moment, but be raised forever, marking that the age of God's kingdom has begun. Verse 16. They were filled, they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. As the people rejoice, they grasp in part that this event points to Jesus' identity. That's clear. They grasp in part that in Jesus, God has come to help his people. In fact, they're reacting as if in the very presence of God. But they are yet to understand in full that the resurrection of the man is not only a window into Jesus' resurrection, but it's because of Jesus' resurrection that it can also be a window into yours. Not long after the encounter, so as news goes out, it just imagines you could, uh, as it would, uh, the imprisoned John the Baptist, he hears reports about everything Jesus has been saying and doing. No doubt he hears about this very encounter. And despite John being a faithful man who cleared the way for Jesus, he actually still isn't sure who Jesus is, it seems. And so he dispatches some messengers with a very simple question for Jesus. Really direct question. I love it. He says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's a great question. I think it's one of the best questions anyone asks that we hear recorded in the Gospels. Are you the one, in effect, who God has promised to send who will undo the damage that we have done to ourselves and to the world, who will meet us with forgiveness and set God's kingdom in place. And as Jesus receives that question from John, he responds straight out of Isaiah 35 and 61. And we read in verse 22, just skipping a little bit further on than what we heard read. Verse 22, go back and report to John, this is Jesus speaking, what you have seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, 
the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's everything Jesus has been doing. He hasn't just declared that he's the one. He's been demonstrating it all along. He's the one full of compassion. The blind see, the lame walk, the leper is cleansed, the deaf hears, the dead are raised. Does that sound familiar? And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This poor widow had some of the worst things happen imaginable. But as Jesus crashes into her life, she has met someone who is both willing and able. Someone who is not only compassionate, but uniquely qualified to address her need and change how her story ends. And the amazing news is that there's an invitation right here that Jesus can change how our story ends too. We are in need, and Jesus is both willing and able. Steve Jobs, quite famously, in an address to some Stanford University students, said, If you live like every day is your last, one day you'll most certainly be right. (laughs) Now, of course, at the heart of what he was saying, was to be a catalyst that would inspire them to greatness. But at another level, he's acknowledging the reality that death faces us all. And not only that, but on our own, we're unable to beat the grip that sin and death have on us. But Jesus, the one full of compassion, is both willing and able. He's the one who, even in the garden, will be willing to go to the cross and able to triumph over it. Who isn't just willing to forgive, but he's able to forgive. Who isn't just able to do resurrection, he is the resurrection. That doesn't mean that life is going to be easy as we await his return. But it means that when you choose Jesus, you're choosing life. That when you choose Jesus, the stranglehold of death is but a temporary embrace. That because of Jesus' resurrection, the worst thing is not the last thing. Because he is the one who has power over life and death. He is both willing and able. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your extraordinary compassion. Lord, we thank you so much that we're not left wondering if you are compassionate, but that as we look to Jesus, that we so clearly see your compassion for us. Lord, we thank you so much that recognising our need, that Jesus would not only come into the world, that through his life, 
that we would so clearly see who he is, that through his death, that sin and death are defeated, and that through his resurrection, that we can rejoice in awe and wonder that as we put our trust in him, that we too will be raised. How we praise you, God, that because of Jesus' resurrection, the worst thing is not the last thing. I especially pray for anyone here today who's really been wrestling with what they think about Jesus. Lord, please, would you be at work in their heart? Lord, may they just see so clearly the great love of Jesus and all that he's done, that we would really recognise our need, that we would see that you are not only the one who is able to address it, but that's precisely what you have already done. How we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.